Good, uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to um, uh, Africa No, as we call these a uh, series of debate that we have every last every last Wednesday of every month, uh, except for this month because um, it's Easter next next week. Uh, my name is Stia. I'm the board chairperson of Fellesrode for Africa, or the Norwegian Council for Africa. Um, every month we try to to shed some light on on a different topic um, concerning uh, the African continent. And today we're going to talk about um, slavery and slavery in our time. Some people call it modern slavery, but there's nothing modern about this type of exploitation uh, of people. And actually, more than 40 million people um, are slaves as we speak. Um, and um, a lot of them are on the African continent or from the African continent. Um, to, to, to moderate um, this debate, we have a uh, postdoc from the University of Oslo in social anthropology. Um, now, practice your name, Maria. Uh, <laughs> it's Maria Hernandez. Help me. <laughs> Caratero. Please give her a warm round of applause. <laughs> Um, yes, so as Dian already introduced, we're going to be talking about modern slavery um, worldwide and um, what, what does it mean, uh, slavery, in our time? Because I think slavery is a notion that most of us think of as something long gone, um, which isn't the case. Um, and so, and, and what are the global structures today, uh, globally, yeah, that allow this to continue existing? And we are very lucky to have an all-female panel today, which I think is rare. <laughs> Um, very, very uh, qualified women who are going to be talking about this issue from slightly different perspectives. Um, so we have Tina Davis, and I don't know whether you want to be coming <laughs> up, um, who's a senior advisor from, for the RAFTA Foundation, and she has previously directed the award-winning documentary film Modern Slavery. Um, she has recently completed a PhD in the area of modern slavery, specifically on forced labor by migrant workers in supply chains. Um, she looks at this issue from a structural perspective, so that's the um, perspective that she comes into the debate with. And she has specifically looked at the exploitation of migrant workers in Australia in the um, food uh, supply chain. And her research is also very much influencing her current work, right? And then we have Fatumata Jara uh, Dabo. <laughs> Um, who works for the International Organization of Mig for Migration, uh, the IOM. Um, she's been, yeah, she's working in Norway and has also been working a bit in the Gambia. Um, she works with identifying and assisting uh, vulnerable migrants in Norway who want to return voluntarily to their countries of origin. And part of her role here in Norway uh, with the IOM involves the implementation of their reintegration uh, assistance once they've returned to the country of origin. So she was in the Gambia in December, and she worked there as a reintegration officer, right? Mm -hmm. So this is also the perspective that she will be bringing into the debate. Um, she's been helping there with, a, um, yeah, assisting a large number of uh, returnees in, uh, with their 
return project or yeah, assistance in the post-return situation. Um, and this has uh, taken place through an EU IOM joint initiative, right? Um, yeah. And finally, we have uh, Ragnil Torstensen, who uh, works as a project manager at Freedom Norway, which is a youth organization that uh, works to prevent human trafficking and contemporary slavery. So it's, a, it's an international youth movement, Freedom, um, which is engaged uh, uh, with um, yeah, giving lectures and creating awareness about the topic uh, of human trafficking. Uh, they travel around the country and give uh, lectures. They have local teams uh, across Norway, um, which do work in local communities, and they also arrange events, uh, participate in public debates, do political lobbying, and so on. And their vision is for a world without human trafficking and sexual exploitation. And they're very much engaged uh, in looking at how um, and, uh, the importance of tackling the structural issues in order to end um, um, human trafficking. Um, so yes, looking at both the demand and the supply side of the problem. And she will also be talking a little bit about um, an accompanied asylum seekers, um, who, which is a, a group that has been receiving a lot of the attention from Freedom in the last year. I'm yeah. Good, so please welcome them. <laughs> And I think maybe to, to start, um, we could first begin with the concept of modern slavery. Um, what do we mean by this? Because there's different kinds of dynamics that are included in, in this big umbrella term. So what do we mean by it? And, and why is it useful to have these umbrella terms? If any of you mm. wants to get started, or maybe Ragnar? Yeah. Um, human trafficking comprises of many different forms of exploitation, like uh, sexual exploitation, uh, different kinds of prostitution. Um, we also have uh, different kinds of uh, forced labor uh, practices and um, yeah, child sol soldiers, uh, forced begging. So there are many different uh, kinds of exploitation that uh, can be described as human trafficking. Uh, and we also see that the global statistics points to that the majority of uh, uh, people exploited in human trafficking are women. Uh, and we see that uh, women and girls are exploited for like, sexual purposes uh, mainly, uh, but we also about maybe 30% of the victims are uh, male, uh, men or boys, and they are more often exploited for um, like physical labor, uh, labor force. And so the issue is how uh, profitable this mm. illegal industry is that uh, compared to like drugs, uh, illegal drug uh, uh, dealing, uh, you can only like use a drug once, but you can exploit a person, um, yeah, endlessly almost. So uh, that I think is an important part of, of that, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Mm. Mm. In terms of the structural, because as we mentioned, I mean, I think, um, yeah, many of us thought, you know, slavery is a thing of the past. So, so what are the, what are the structural conditions globally that allow this to to still exist? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I think uh, when you talk about modern slavery, as you say, slavery is not a thing of the past. It's um, 
there's always been slavery in history, mm. as long as we can track uh, uh, human history. I think the one key difference uh, with what they call modern slavery is that in uh, the transatlantic slavery, for instance, a slave was a commodity, it was an investment, it was something that cost a significant amount of money. It was something that people would look after, almost like a, you know, it was your, that was how you could get your farming around. And so the, one of the big differences is that because of the population growth, this massive population growth, especially since the, the Second World War, um, the prices of slaves today compared to then is almost like nothing, you know, $100 or you know, $300. So people have become disposable in a different way. And there is a lot of um, supply of people that can be taken into different forms of slavery. Mm. So I think the person who also introduced the term modern slavery, which was uh, Kevin Bales, who also has is one of the authors of the, the latest uh, statistical number that uh, Ranghil mentioned. He often says that it's really important to understand that today um, the slavery is very much about dis the, the disposable aspect of it, e easy to take because there's a lot of vulnerable people mm. and easy to throw away. Mm. Maybe you can speak a bit more about what, what are the conditions of vulnerability that make uh, that that make it possible for there to be so many people who fall in this, in this category of disposable um, people, as you were saying, yeah. I think one of the key things would be that, um, you know, poverty is a key thing, mm. and the lack of decent work. Mm. It could be a conflict, um, people living in countries of dictatorships where they have to flee. Um, you often see when there's a vacuum, there's no rule of law in post-conflict countries. Um, the slavery or the, the, the prevalence of slavery will go up. Um, yeah, so I think those are some of the key issues. And then if you look at it from maybe a business point of view, um, you know, the, the chase for lower prices, you know, pushing the prices down, the supply chain, um, can be one of the, the issues. I think also it has to do with the lack of commitment mm. in not just governments, but I think society as a whole mm. to see what's around us. When people talk about slavery, especially at least in the circles I tend to move in, recently they make a lot of reference to the CNN video that we mm. saw in Libya of people being auctioned. Mm. And that's how they visualize slavery. Mm. But the fact is slavery is all around us here, even in Norway. Mm. It could be the person who washes your car, mm. the person who does your nails, mm. uh, the person who does your hair. Mm. So it affects us every single day, we see it, but at the same time, it's not visible mm. because the vulnerability aspect is, is there. These are not people who can speak for themselves. They often fear the authorities. Mm. They fear the countries that they might return to if they are caught. And the whole idea of it, it keeps going because the people who are responsible for exploiting this group of people instill fear in them, exploit them, take away whatever little resources they have, whether it is their documentation that will help them to come out of it, 
often they do not speak the language in the countries that they are in, so people are making decisions for them. Mm. And when we look at even the Norwegian uh, context, we see that uh, a lot of girls are trafficked from countries like Nigeria, Brazil, Estonia, Ghana, Eritrea, Kenya, so, and also even from other European countries and Eastern Europe. So it's not slavery in the traditional sense as we think of it, of somebody being auctioned, but it's also about somebody being paid the basic way that you can understand is somebody is being paid too little for whatever work they're doing, mm -hmm. below the minimum wage, in very bad conditions. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people fall under that category, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Yeah, Jara, you're already going into the, the um, hinting at the connection between modern slavery and, and migration, but could you maybe elaborate a bit more on, um, are they two very closely interconnected? Is it a problem that particularly affects people who are on the move, whether within their countries or outside? Yeah, I think it does. It, it does in some in some countries. They don't necessarily have to be on the move. And I'm looking at it uh, today's discussion. I'm looking at it more from an African lenses. So I make lots of reference to Africa, in particular West Africa. Um, when you look at a country like Mauritania, yes, they do say that it's illegal, but it is not. It's not illegal to own a slave in Mauritania. These are Mauritanian nationals who are not leaving their countries. So it's not just migrants well, depending on what your definition of a migrant is. Mm -hmm. If at all you're looking at migrants from IOM's point of view, a migrant is anybody who moves from your place of birth to another place, mm -hmm. which means around this room, probably, we are all migrants. Mm -hmm. Most of you were not born in mm -hmm. Oslo. Maybe you moved from the north for the Norwegians in the room and people like me, for obviously, you can see I'm not from Norway. So it's not necessarily only migrants that this affects, but yes, recently we have seen that it's linked a lot to migration, especially when we look at uh, uh, African, West African countries and uh, the Sahel countries, people migrating in huge numbers, mm -hmm. using dangerous routes, and being uh, exploited and trafficked and smuggled all along the way to go into work, as, as, as Tina mentioned, because when they get to countries like, for example, Libya, they're working for very little money. Even those who are meant to be protected, even those individuals who are being held, let's say, in government-controlled detention centers, we have reports that they're able to leave during the day, they work on farms, make very little money, or no money, and then they return to the place of safety. So, yeah, and unfortunately, it's very much linked to our food as well. Food, you say. Yeah. Mm. yeah, but what makes migrants particularly vulnerable to fall into these uh, dynamics of uh, modern slavery? Yeah, it can be it can be everything from you know not having a safe migration pathway. It can mm. be misinformation in your network. Um, people say you know if you do if you go there or if you do do this way or go, you know mm. people find work on on um, social medias jobs. Mm. Uh, where they get some promises and they can be lured, especially into agriculture, under conditions that they weren't expecting. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the the vulnerability, as as uh, you mentioned, is that you know you 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 may not speak the language. Mm. That's a key thing. You may not understand. On a, if you're in a context where you have, you know, more rights, you may not understand what labour rights that you have. Um, you may fair authorities. Mm -hmm. So even if something happens to you, you would not go and, and seek assistance, or you wouldn't maybe even know where to seek mm -hmm. assistance. 
And it's, you know, the, the aspect of being held under threat and, and threat of violence or under violence, I think very much defines why people, although they're not in chains necessarily, they won't leave because they don't feel that they can leave or maybe their papers have been um, taken away mm. so they, they can't physically... Mm. So it's not necessarily a visible form of coercion or... Yes. Um, but yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, and I also think it's important to highlight uh, like the demand uh, side mm. of this because there is a, like if you can say call it market, there is a market for exploitation because like in Europe there is a market, huge market for prostitution, sexual exploitation, and also when it comes to <coughs> foods or other goods that we consume, um, we. Uh, are very concerned with like the quality of like if you talk about clothing garment the quality of it uh, like many different aspects of um, a clothing item but maybe not so concerned with who produced this mm -hmm. that I'm wearing and uh, yeah so I think also if there there weren't a market for exploitation then maybe this would not be such a profitable industry so. That is also an important dimension to mm. keep in mind as yeah. well. Yeah, uh, but it's not all dire. Yeah. It's no. not all depressed because mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. are things being done, mm. and a lot of governments are also showing a lot of initiative to try and stop exploitation of other people. Um, and Norway, I think, in 2015, correct me if I'm wrong, they ratified the ILO's ILO, that's International Labour Organization's Forced Labour Protocol. And they're trying to get, uh, by 2018, they're trying to get about 50 countries to sign on. So this comes with stiffer penalties for people who are caught exploiting others, harsher mm. sentencing. So better laws. Mm. Because the reason why it's done so blatantly in the open is because people are not afraid. Because they catch you and nothing happens. Because mm. it's very difficult to prosecute. But with this, laws are beginning to change in countries very, very slowly. Mm. And I think Norway was the second country after Niger who signed this protocol. Yes, but um, it can be very positive from, you can all do something. It's about mobilizing awareness, things mm -hmm. like these events, talking about it, making people see it, whether they want to or not, making it visible. And uh, I think I, I want to add to that because if you look at, um, someone made this calculation for me, um, you know, 40 million slaves is a lot. <laughs> that also includes forced marriage in that, mm -hmm. so yeah. different aspects of... Um, but if you look at what that means, it's 0 0.00061 of the global population. Mm. Um, also, the, num the, the amount of profit that comes from illegal, you know, this illegal activity every year is $150 billion. Mm -hmm. uh, that's zero, uh, 0 0.002 of the world's economy. Mm. So from that perspective as well, I think there's, you know, it's, it's good to have that perspective because it means we can tackle it. Mm. You know, they're not unsurmountable um, issues. They're complex. Mm. There's no easy solution. Mm. I mean, you know, as you talked about Africa, um, child soldiers is one mm -hmm. problem. They don't mm, even exactly. migrate necessarily. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many aspects to this that mm -hmm. falls into this category. <coughs> but um, there's a lot happening. And I think more and more, even the last 10 years since I started working on this, I see uh, legislation uh, being improved. So in, in the UK, they got a Modern Slavery Act in 2015. Mm -hmm. 
that's made a big difference in that it's really put this um, uh, phenomenon of slavery in the public's awareness. Mm. You know, the papers write about it all, all the time. There's more cases of prosecution. Mm. You know, there's no perfect solution. Mm. I mean, it's, it's a step by step and mm. many things need to happen. But I also agree that, mm. you know, it is something that is possible to tackle bit by bit mm. and, and with, um, you know, in partnership, mm. you know, coming from it with, uh, at it from many different angles. Mm. <coughs> and, and I mean, uh, today, I mean, everything is so interconnected. So one thing I'm thinking, um, one thing is the legislation that maybe we have in place in, in our own countries or uh, what happens about, you know, with the products, whether it is food or clothes or other um, uh, products that we consume and that are maybe produced in uh, conditions of forced labor elsewhere. Do we have, do our countries have any way of influencing um, that those forms of production, what can be done? Is anything being done? So there's something called, a, from the business perspective, there's something called the UN Guiding Principles uh, on Business and Human Rights, mm. which were introduced in 2011. And they say that all business, large or small, have to follow these 17 sets of, of principles. And there's three pillars. There's um, protect, respect, and remedy. Mm -hmm. and it applies to states and it applies to businesses, also in Norway. Mm -hmm. And it means that you need to do due diligence in your supply chains. Mm -hmm. You need to understand you know, how your company can directly or indirectly uh, affect mm -hmm. um, or be involved in issues such as slavery and other human rights breaches. Mm -hmm. So, um, and also with the, the, the um, sustainable development goals, mm -hmm. You know, they also have, not all of them and not overtly, but they also have a grounding mm. in human rights. So there are tools there today that mm. if we can sort of promote them and highlight mm. them and encourage, I mean, every organization can do their due diligence. Every school mm. can do it in their supply chains. Mm. Ask the suppliers, you know, where do you get your mm. supply from, from? And if they don't know, they'll ask. And then mm -hmm. you start and you do assessments and find risks you know, what are the risks areas? How can we look into this more? Mm. I mean, there's, um, uh, you know, Hydro is a, a case up mm -hmm. at the moment um, w where you can see how something can um, happen dramatically. Mm. And it really affects the company's reputation mm. and, you know, and their finances and everything. And slavery is one of these uh, phenomena. No company wants to be associated with this. Mm. I think mm. there's almost like, uh, you know, mm. <coughs> so, a mm. complete agreement that no one wants slavery, mm. but we don't know where it is and where, you know, you can't, it's hard to find, even mm. in supply chains. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So one thing is maybe uh, that nobody wants to be their firm or their brand to be associated uh, with mm. it in the public domain, but I'm thinking in terms of enforcement, I mean, it's good to have all these guidelines and mm. regulations, but how much um, enforcement uh, is taking place, or how easy is it to enforce these guidelines other than bringing, or, or yeah, is anything possible other than bringing light into these kind of conditions and kind of publicly shaming brands or companies that? I think from a business, of, if it comes to products today, investors are very strict. They want to know mm. what businesses are doing because mm. it's a risk for them. Mm. They don't want to be associated with this. That puts pressure on companies mm. to then do their due diligence. You know, as customers and uh, consumers, we have power. Mm. We can mm. ask, 
we can look up and go, okay, what are the benchmarks in, um, you know, for garments or for electronics, and what are the companies, you know, they, they're already rated out there. And then we can do conscious choices of what we want to buy or not buy. And we can also be aware that maybe we can't always get very cheap things. Mm -hmm. Cheap things has a cost. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I was just going to ask in terms of, yeah, like what can we do as individuals? Is it um, other than being aware and uh, accepting that things can maybe, should maybe be more expensive than what we're willing to pay? Is there something that we can <laughs> do to change this situation? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it's important, um, uh, as Tina talked about, to... Uh, really um, promote the good initiatives that exist, like the UN Sustainable Development Goals in Freedom. We have really been promoting how uh, these sustainable development goals for the first time also include, like we need to tackle the problem of human trafficking and slavery if we are to reach many of these goals. So I think um, like relating to this, uh, th these global goals, there are a lot of things that we can do both as individuals, but also uh, try to uh, influence politicians and uh, to really take this issue seriously and not just by talking about it with very fine words, but also take, uh, take action to make a change. Um, so I think that is very important and also uh, to support when it comes to the sexual exploitation and prostitution. Uh, we have seen from, for example, in Norway with the, the Sex Purchase Act uh, that there has been a reduce in the uh, demand of prostitution because it's not that attractive for uh, Norwegians when we know that it's not legal to buy sex. There are fewer people who buy sex and then as a consequence there might be less or reports have shown that there is less exploitation going on, both of uh, adults and also children. Um, and uh, contrary to that, we see in other European countries that has not uh, this uh, legislation and are more liberal when it comes to prostitution, brothels, pimping, uh, we see a whole different reality. So I think uh, as an individual and also politically, uh, everybody should use their power to uh, mm. take part in like reducing this demand for sexual exploitation. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And since yeah, you're talking about the issue of trafficking and which links back to the topic of migration, um, I was wondering, Jara, whether you could tell us also a little bit about um, what happens with uh, migrants who have ended up in situations of slavery outside of their country and who are assisted by, by the IOM in returning back to their countries. What What's the situation for them? What um, yeah? What opportunities do they have when they go back? Yeah, um, I can talk about the Norwegian context first. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm based with the office here in Norway, and my team is here. <laughs> and within IOM Norway, we have a special unit called the Vulnerable Groups Unit, and we work in partnership with other Norwegian agencies to identify victims of human trafficking or other forms of exploitation. Uh, once they have been identified, then uh, we assist them to return to their countries. And they would normally get um, a small amount of cash and also a bulk 
of in-kind support, which they would use to resettle back into their own communities if they so choose. Mm -hmm. um, this helps some people uh, when they go back because they often leave with nothing and they come to us often broken and have lost faith in the system, mm -hmm. so to speak. So that's one of the programs that IOM Norway does. And we also offer them psychosocial support um, and we follow up on the cases that we send to different parts of the world um, for a period of one year to make sure that they are okay and they're settled in their communities. We have a lot of success stories of people whose lives change tremendously and they stay in their countries of origin with sustainable livelihoods. On the other hand, it's not always rosy. We have cases, particularly uh, people from Nigeria, who stay for short periods of time and then they're back in Europe or on the road again mm. because they're going back to all sorts of complications, whether it is stigma in their communities, whether the money they get is not enough, whether there's lack of opportunities, high unemployment and so on. Mm. When we look at it, uh, like you mentioned earlier, I was in Gambia for roughly over two months um, and this was in response to the crisis in Libya. IOM got funding from the EU under the EU IOM Joint Initiative for Migrant Protection and Reintegration. And this was, IOM of course had been talking about exploitation of modern day slavery in Libya for about a year before uh, CNN picked this up. And then luckily the whole world became interested, including the EU. So they provided money for 12 countries in West Africa uh, and also uh, in West Africa and the Horn of Africa, and also Libya. And what IOM was doing there is to assist migrants who are in terrible situations and to evacuate them out of Libya back into their own countries. And um, we called it voluntary humanitarian um, return because of the conditions that they were in. Some had been in state controlled detention centers, anything from a few months to years. And in the Gambian context, um, IOM Gambia, who were given funding for three years, and in that three-year period, um, they had said, the EU had said that we could assist um, 1,500 people to return within the period of three years. Mm -hmm. I was in Gambia for almost three months. Within six months, that figure had gone to 2,000, roughly 2,300 people had already returned. So it exceeded the number of people that we had funding for. And in those cases, when they do return, they would get direct assistance. Mm -hmm. And this could be uh, a small cash amount uh, for subsistence allowance. And then the bulk of it is setting up small businesses, vocational training for those with medical needs. They could use it for their health and to pay their medical bills. And also capacity building. Mm -hmm. Because Gambia is one of the countries, it's a very tiny country in West Africa. The population is 1.8 million. As tiny as it is, Gambia was the third producer of um, irregular mig migrants. Mm -hmm. It used in the Mediterranean route in 2016-17. There were some villages in Gambia that literally there were no young people, no young men. Mm -hmm. You go into the villages and it's all young kids and very old men, because all the youth had migrated. Uh, so there were some were stranded along the routes, whether it's in Niger or 
or Mali or Mauritania, and a lot of them were also stranded in Libya. Mm. So when the EU um, funded Libya to, um, for lack of a better word, to stop the boats from coming into Europe, that caused a backlog of commodity human beings, unfortunately. Suddenly, the traffickers and the smugglers had too many people on their hands, and they had to get rid of these people, and the only way they could do it was to sell them. Hence, that video of the auction. So the people that we were assisting, they came home broken, dejected. Some, it was awful situations. You could see anything from a small baby who's breastfeeding to older people, but they're pre predominantly young males who came. Uh, pregnant girls, people with gunshot wounds in their backs, uh, people who could barely walk when they got off the planes because they'd been beaten so badly, mm. broken bones, whatever you can imagine what the situation was. Mm. But they come back and the resilience of the human spirit, they're happy to be home. Mm. They're happy to see mm. that the government is trying to do something to help assist. Mm. But of course it comes back to what you had mentioned earlier, that the root cause of all of this is poor governance and poverty. In the Gambian context, they had a dictator for 22 years. So many people felt they had no choice but to leave the country, so they left. Mm. But this was replicated in a lot of West African countries. And now the problem that we have is that so many people have been evacuated at such a high rate that um, they're coming faster than we can absorb them governments and IOM, that's one of the biggest challenges that we have. And just to put that into context, um, for example, for Cameroon, they were targeting to, mobilize, to move or evacuate 850 people out of Libya. And uh, as of uh, end of January, that had figure had gone to 1,014. For Gambia, it was supposed to be for 1,500. Within six months, it had gone to 2,020. For um, Senegal, was supposed to be 3,000, had gone up to 3,500 roughly. Nigeria was supposed to be 3,800, and within a period of six months, it had gone to 9,100. Mm. So you can imagine. Yeah. And, and you say that um, they were happy, many of them at least were happy to be back home in mm -hmm. the Gambia and to see that their government cared about their situation and so on. But I'm thinking these are also people that have invested, both them individually and their families have invested a lot of hope, a lot of money mm -hmm. uh, into these migration projects who expected that their lives were going to change, the lives of their families. Yeah. So um, once back home is realistically what the IOM and the EU is able to offer them. Is that Does that um, satisfy those <laughs> broken hopes or do we end up uh, um, seeing I wouldn't say necessarily it satisfies people because reintegration is a process that is relatively slow. Mm. It's not a quick fix. If you invest in a business or you start a course, you don't see instant results. Mm. The young youth, young men, most of them, they want fast results. A lot of them are stigmatized because um, like you said, the communities are expecting a lot from them when they come back. Some of them, the families would have sold off whatever land they had to fund these journeys. The mothers in particular were funding some of these journeys, and then suddenly you have a failure in the family. 
So part of the work that we were doing in collaboration with the Gambian government was awareness raising as well, mm -hmm. as well as capacity building. So we had direct assistance to the migrant, but we also had assistance to benefit the communities in which they were being sent back to, or coming back to. So that, um, for example, uh, one of the projects that we, we are trying to set up now is a communal garden in one part of the country that was particularly affected. It's a huge garden. And um, they plant vegetables and make quite a lot of money, the women in the village. So their biggest challenge was that they didn't have access to water. Mm. And we have a Spanish NGO who's operating in the Gambia. So this NGO will train our returnees, for example. Mm -hmm. So we're giving them skills for long-term solutions, not short-term solutions. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that they will build wells, and then there's less accidents for the women on the farm, and it's safer for people to work. Mm -hmm. And also, it provides employment. Mm -hmm. So whilst they're doing this activity that's been identified between them and IOM, they get uh, a stipend mm -hmm. money. And it's equivalent to a Gambian salary, because salaries are so low. Mm -hmm. And once they have finished, they get something called a graduation package. So if somebody was interested in carpentry, we would help them to open a, a shop mm -hmm. and give them all the tools to set up the business. Do people? I mean, I'm wondering whether a lot of people end up are happy to then stay with these kind of projects or whether a lot of people actually end up remigrating? Um, it's early to tell yeah. because uh, this project was only implemented last year. Mm. And, and even though it was implemented in the EU, EU in 2016, but um, we actually started working on this only from September, at mm. least in the, in the Gambian context. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it's difficult to say. Yeah. The fact is that People will always migrate. People will always be on the move. IOM's job is not to say to people, you cannot migrate. That's not our philosophy. We're not stopping people from migrating. Migration is not a bad thing, even though when you read the media, you think it was. But migration is positive most of the time. We're just trying to offer people alternatives to stay in their communities if they want, and if they choose to migrate, to use safer routes to migrate in, that they don't jeopardize their lives and they don't uh, get bankrupt their families in the process. Mm. So I guess in terms of solution, what would help is probably to have safer routes, more legal routes. People, when they're prevented from traveling to Europe or wherever it is they're going, mm. um, if they can't get visas and so on, they will look at other ways of getting in. Yes. And that's when this, all this exploitation and slavery then the comes from, yes. and the smuggling. And we know that um, um, young people, um, children, adolescents, and young people in places like Libya are at particularly high risk of exploitation, especially with those who travel alone. Um, so I was thinking maybe, Ragnil, you could tell mm -hmm. us a bit about the work uh, that you've been doing in relation to mm -hmm unaccompanied asylum seekers in Norway in particular, but yeah. maybe also generally in Europe. Yeah. Uh, we were uh, very uh, shocked by uh, the statistics of a UNICEF uh, report that uh, was published last year, uh, which stated that uh, among the children and youth um, uh, migrating on the migration routes between uh, Africa and Europe, uh, there were like 77% who had experience with abuse or exploitation. Mm. So that is really alarming statistics. Um, and in at least numbers from 2016, there was uh, every fourth asylum seekers in, in Europe were minor. Um, 
and there has been like different uh, institutions like the UN, the EU and Europol, they have uh, also uh, talked about how many criminal networks are exploiting this because especially children and youth are very vulnerable for exploitation when they travel alone. Uh, so that is why we have been uh, very concerned with this issue in uh, our organization. And um, yeah, so we, when it comes to uh, the situation in Norway, uh, last year over 200 uh, young persons disappeared from their reception centers and who knows where they have taken uh, the path and uh, m many of these uh, young people have disappeared because they have only gotten temporary uh, residence permits in Norway <coughs> and they, so they fear um, becoming 18 years of age mm. because then they will be returned to their uh, home, co home countries so uh, this has been an issue that has been going on for some years but um, yeah it's really an issue that we need to tackle. And I think in Norway, as uh, there are not so many, we uh, didn't receive too many uh, refugees and especially unaccompanied minor as uh, asylum seekers, this should be a problem that we could easily do something about and uh, make sure that young people do not disappear from reception centers because I think the uh, chances are high that they will get into some kind of exploitation, get in contact with people who have, uh, who do not have uh, good intentions and yeah. And there has been also reports from both uh, a Harvard report from um, Athens uh, and the uh, researchers talked about uh, that it is some kind of uh, epidemic of uh, a growing epidemic of sexual exploitation of refugee children in mm -hmm. Athens and in Greece and also from Norway, Procentre, uh, that's uh, Oslo's municipality service for persons with the experience, uh, experience of selling or trading sex. Uh, they uh, released a report last year uh, confirming that there were uh, Afghan children in the streets of Oslo selling sex. Mm -hmm. So this is also an issue that uh, affects us here in Norway. Yeah. And, and, and are authorities at the Norwegian or European level doing anything in particular to this specific very vulnerable group? Like from Freedom's perspective, we believe that uh, the Norwegian authorities are not doing enough. Mm. That the, uh, there should be some mechanisms that can uh, protect these young people from uh, disappearing. And also maybe there should be done more uh, on the European cooperation level mm. to uh, make sure that uh, these young people cannot just disappear. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm, yeah, because many may end up going to another European country, right? Mm. Yeah. But also some countries have, like Holland, they have, If um, I think it's at Schiphol, if there's anyone there the, um, in customs or p police or security guards who see um, a young person and they think that maybe someone who is trafficked, or um, they will take them out. And I think they have an institution, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember they did used to have that, where, where it wasn't so that you could walk in and out of this institution. You were mm. kind of there, uh, protected. But also some of the unaccompanied minors who come here may already be trafficked mm. when they seek asylum, and that is a way for 
the traffickers to get them into Norway for whatever purpose. And I, I know one person who, you know, he, he connects all the issues we're talking about with Africa and unaccompanied minors. And um, he came to Norway when he was about 14, 15, 14, I think. And he, um, he came from Western Sahara, which is um, occupied territory, so he was stateless. He arrived in um, Europe, in Spain, as a child, and he was um, drifting through different countries. And when maybe he was around nine, he met um, a family in Belgium who took him in. And you know, they, from his perspective, and from you know, I think often another thing is that if you're trafficked, you don't necessarily know what you're experiencing in terms of terminology mm -hmm. or, you know. And this was a family who fed him, uh, but they also had him working. And he was helping out other family members, um, you know, decorating their houses and everything. They had kids who went to school, he couldn't go to school. So after maybe almost a year, I think he ran off. And when he then ended up in the Netherlands, he, um, you know, he was on the street. So he got involved in uh, a gang that were dealing drugs all across Europe. So when he came to Norway, he was in in a situation of trafficking. Mm -hmm. And I mean, his perspective was that, you know, they gave me protection, mm -hmm. clothes, food. Um, so, you know, especially I think I've, I've also worked with um, young people who's been child soldiers. Mm -hmm. It can almost be that you get a little bit brainwashed or like a mm -hmm. Stockholm syndrome. Hmm. after a while. So you might not clearly think that I'm being in this situation of force. But as after he came to Norway and as he got older and he got involved in the Norwegian system and started school for the first time, he had one, he got one foot in a, I can say, normal life and he had still one foot in this gang because for them, he was an asset, and he couldn't just leave. It was more dangerous for him to try and leave than to... And, you know, he'd seen what had happened to... And he was going to school. He he, he disappeared from the, asi the asylum centers, but he was still around, and he ended up in school. And, um, was you know, he started... He joined a sports running club, and he did well, and he, he got, you know, a different life than he'd ever ex experienced as a, also as an orphan. Um, and then the gang, there was one incident where they set a trap for him, uh, where which meant that he had to flee the country, although he had a residency in Norway at the time. And being uninformed, when you talk about <laughs> safe migration routes, you know, he 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 went to Australia, and um, who has the strongest immigration laws in Western, the Western world, and he's now been detained for eight years. He's indefinite. Um, and he hasn't been picked up, you know, by any systems. Um, so I think, you know, capacity raising, knowledge, awareness, all of this, um, people working frontline need to understand what this looks like. You know, he's had gar guardians in Norway, he's had lawyers, no one's been able to even, you know, see that. Um, so it's a joint effort. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting you should raise the issue of capacity raising. 
Often when people talk about capacity building, you think uneducated, um, unresourceful people. But the fact is it it's affects all levels because we also work with unaccompanied minors, uh, our unit, and we assist them to return and reunite them with their families, at least those who want to go. And they have legal guardians when they come to Norway, but at least some of the experiences we've had is that the legal guardians are completely helpless because they don't know how to deal with these, uh, with these minors. Uh, the commitment is not necessarily there. Um, nobody wants to ask somebody, have you been abused? A lot of the time they have been. And of course, they have all sorts of traumas because mm -hmm. of the lack of capacity in the people who are meant to be taking care of them mm -hmm. as well. So capacity building, mm -hmm. I think, would be a good thing to do. Yeah. It can take just one person yeah. to help yeah. someone um, out of a situation like that. And you know, someone who's just a, a little bit aware. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you will, if we look and we see something that seems strange, it, often is strange. Yeah. Mm. We should follow those instincts. Mm. I mean, I, I know uh, another um, story that is part of the film I made was a girl in, in uh, Paris who was trafficked from Morocco when she was nine by a woman who knew the parents or the, the father, the mother was passed away. And the father was poor and she promised that she would give the daughter education in France. And she was in domestic slavery f or servitude from the age of nine till she was about, about 19. Mm. And the police had known that there was someone having a person there um, who was irregular, who didn't have documents. So they said, you have to take this person down to the police station. But they didn't realize the, that it was a, a sort of slavery situation. So the woman arranged to very quickly to 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 marry her away, so forced mm. marriage, because then she would get papers to mm. be in, in um, France. Mm. And there was an um, engagement party, and this girl, beautiful girl, Rania, uh, was sitting there, and there was a woman who didn't know the woman who kept her very well, but who'd been invited, and who was sitting there looking at this girl, thinking, why does she look so sad on her mm. engagement day? Mm. There's something wrong. Mm. And she was just able, literally, to give her a piece of note with a phone number and said, if you need something, you can always call me. And the girl didn't, because she had never, you know, no one had helped her. You know, there'd been neighbors and people who'd seen this. Um, so she didn't call, but after a month or some, so, she realized that, well, it can't get bad, worse than what it is now. Mm. I, I'll, I'll call. So mm. she called this woman, and the woman met her in a cafe, she could tell what had happened to her. And today this woman is her foster mother. Mm. And this is you know, over 10 years ago now. Mm. But it could be that one person, mm. whether it's a teacher mm. or a, you know, whoever. Mm. Yeah. S since we're talking quite a lot about migration and trafficking, I thought I, I, it's maybe good to also do a little bit of a terminological <laughs> um, clarification, I think. Uh, between what smuggling and, and trafficking is, right, and, and the importance of, or the connection to um, strict migration controls, right? So we have a lot of people around the world who want to migrate for different reasons, whether it is for protection or to seek a better future. And because it is so difficult for them to, to do so, they have to rely on the services of smugglers. 
Um, and so the distinction, just to make this clear, the distinction between smuggling and trafficking is smuggling, you're providing a service to someone who wants to cross borders. Trafficking is when there's going to be an element of exploitation in addition to it, right? Um, so when the people who help uh, somebody cross borders then also uh, do so for the purposes of exploiting them for whether it is labor or um, uh, sexually and so on. And of course the problem is that these boundaries also get blurred and that people who maybe mm. begin uh, only providing a service mm. uh, or being provided a service by smugglers eventually maybe fall into the hands of other groups that have uh, um, exploitative intentions or that migrants that um, that, um, that were not being trafficked eventually end up in a situation of debt bondage to the people who uh, have smuggled them because they cannot repay them, um, which is, and, 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 and debt bondage is a part of what is considered also uh, it's modern a, it's, slavery. It's an entry yes. point. Often Debt is often the entry point oh, into yes. situations of slavery, whether yeah. it's into, uh, you know, mm. agriculture or, you know, any yeah. almost forms yeah. debt and... Yeah. When it comes to labor exploitation, it's often the recruitment process where mm. you see that these um, these uh, elements occur. Mm. Yeah. They happen. So to tie back to all the different kinds of uh, tr structures that um, that account for this problem, um, I don't know whether you want to say something more before we open up for questions from the audience, or whether we should just go for the questions right away. If anybody mm. has any. Do you want to know more about the Can different types Can I ask a question? Yes. <laughs> sure. Why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> yes, go ahead. Yes, um, my name is Babu. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I'm really interested in, in the topic, and uh, of course, I'm African, and this is when we talk about every. As I was saying, um, slavery is something that uh, affects many people, uh, like you've mentioned, um, all over the world. Um, but for me, as an African, I think uh, it's a topic that I'm very, very much aware of and very interested. And um, I think it's very sad that uh, we have now a situation where, uh, uh, you know, it has become so common to see Africans in bondage, and considering that you know the historical uh, background of uh, uh, you know of Africa uh, being the continent that has been almost always exploited, uh, and uh, we have the trans uh, transatlantic slave uh, trade, that history, and so my question is, uh, how come you know uh, it seems as if the world hasn't learned? And you know we are repeating this, you know this uh, cycle of uh, exploiting people, and in this particular case, Africans all over again. 
Um, and um, this is not only, uh, you know, uh, because when we talk about slavery, you know, we focus on, you know, the smugglers and the, you know, and these uh, small gangs uh, operating in many different countries. But we also have, you know, these regulations, you know, governmental regulations that facilitates these things, like, you know, the unfair trade uh, where you have a poor country which is being exploited by uh, richer countries, and that can also open up for, uh, kind of like opens the door for um, uh, for poverty, you know, in the case where, you know, uh, people are not pay, are paid, you know, the, the, uh, the, um, uh, the wage, uh, wage, yeah, that they deserve. And in the case where, for instance, uh, you have big Europeans, multinational companies uh, that are uh, uh, outsourcing their labors to poor countries, and people are being exported, and then you know where now we can afford these you know fancy clothing and things like that. So my question is to keep it short: is that you know is that have we learned anything? And if so, uh, what can we do in terms of not only uh, as individuals but also how can we impact uh, the structural change and you know the governmental changes that can you know can alter the situation? Thank you. I can try to say something, and maybe yeah, you yeah. wise women can fill me in. Um, I think that it really goes comes down to uh, respecting human rights, respecting like the core values that we. We believe in, and I think this needs to be done on, like, from individual level and also on government level. Uh, yeah. So, like, because when we talk about reasons why people get exploited, uh, we cannot come past like the uh, element of racism that might be there. Uh, uh, we talked about like uh, conflict and. Uh, poverty and different factors, but I think also those, uh, yeah, we need to also get into talking about the values and, or lack of values that exist that makes uh, slavery still be an issue in the world today. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I think governance yeah. plays a big part um, here and in Asian countries, African countries, you know, European countries, everywhere, governance. I know I've been to South Africa quite a lot, I've worked there, and when I see what's happened lately or in the last, you know, so many years, uh, it's disheartening to see that the lack of strong governance um, maybe uh, stopped a development that was looking very hopeful and promising and positive for so many people, and that was really important for so many people. Um, governance here, there can be much clearer rules, or sorry, regulations, maybe that goes to supply chains, legislation for supply chains for um, that can um, regulate uh, global supply chains, um, so that one can have better conditions for workers and where brands, companies take more responsibility. Um, I think, yeah, you can. Yeah, um, I was going to say governance is one thing. Poverty is another thing. And um, when you look at it in the African context also, it's just lack of opportunities a lot of the time. 
not necessarily resources, but uneven distribution of resources. Mm. Uh, I don't like to word, use the word necessary corruption. Mm. But um, people don't have access to basic things like health care. And the problems that you've spoke about, is they're not just African problems, it's globally. Mm. I mean, especially when we talk about um, Libya, for example, we talk a lot about the migrants in Libya. But the fact is that a lot of Libyans have also been internally displaced in their own country because of the war that's been happening and instability. So for me, the starting point will be less wars. I know that is not a realistic expectation, but we can certainly aspire for it, hold governments more accountable to it. I think the world also, it's, uh, at least this is just my personal opinion, our younger generation, I'm pretty old, much older than you probably, I'm in my late 40s. And when I see your generation, it gives me hope because you're more conscious. You have more of a conscience than we did when we were growing up in terms of how you eat, what you wear. Uh, I have children of friends who are vegans or vegetarians or don't wear leather and so on. And when you visit them, you almost feel guilty to admit that you're not vegetarian. I mentioned no names in the room. <laughs> so I think people are making smarter choices now. Um, in a way, we're handing over a very damaged world on many levels. But the will of people such as yourself and the passion to change it is something that is really promising. Um, yeah. yeah, sure. Sorry, the other aspect also is culture. So one of the countries that's had the most slavery is India. Yeah. And a lot of the slavery that happens there, not all of course, but a lot of it doesn't even come into global supply chains. Yeah, it's cultural. You know, it's culturally bound. It can be in brick kilns, mm -hmm. stone quarries, products that are produced for, for the domestic market. Um, I think that rather than allowing culture to shape people, people need to shape culture, yeah. you know, and that's another aspect. As you said, you know, especially with the younger generation, you know, you know so much more. Yeah. Uh, and, and today, there's so much more example. I mean, I didn't even think about supply chains much 20 years ago, <laughs> you know, when I was in my... I'd, now we know, um, yesterday... I spoke to someone who started a company in Norway called Fair and Square, where they produce clothes. And they've set up a model because they wanted to, to make a difference. So they, a bunch of Norwegians, I think seven young Norwegians, have opened a little factory in China. And I think now they have 13 people working in this factory. And their next goal is that they also want to grow their own cotton so that they don't have any supplies in their supply chain. And then people can buy their T-shirts or, or the garments. But what they say, it's, it also costs to be ethical, you know. Mm -hmm. But when people say, we want to be ethical, well, they were saying, we hope people will pay for, you know, put the money where the words are and, you know, mm -hmm. as, as much as you can. But also uh, with food, for instance, as a commodity, you know, not everyone can afford buying ethical. That's another dilemma. You know, it costs and because prices have been pushed down over so long, people are used and accustomed to getting cheap. Yeah. Mm. 
So there's a whole cultural change there, mm. or, you know, a mental change that needs to, um, yeah. Mm. You need to change mentalities around, you know, where do I buy and how do I buy? And Because I actually think that most people aren't bad necessarily. Like if I hold up two apples and I say, you know, one's going to cost five kroner and it's been paid by someone who didn't get paid what they deserved. They were working in really harsh conditions, you know, um, overworked, treated really badly. And this apple costs seven kroner and it's been made by a worker who's been really looked after and who's had all their rights um, met. I think most people would take that, you know, that apple. But we don't see it, you know, sometimes, you know, supply chains, the things happen far away, you know, in almost like dark corners. So there's a disconnect that we also need to, to shift. Yeah, I can just add one small thing um, uh, concerning what you said, and I really believe that uh, having knowledge is really the basis for making this change. And, and in Freedom as a youth organization, we travel around and give lectures and have workshops for young people from the age like 13 to 35, yeah. Each year, uh, to thousands of youth, and we really see that when people get more knowledge about this subject, they really want to get engaged and make a difference. So I think there is really hope for, for a change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, hello, good evening. My name is Bjart Vanvik. I'm a Norwegian. Um, and I wanted to make a comment to the whole complex of uh, trafficking and modern slavery. Um, but first, I'm going to answer your question, why am I here? Um, I'm primarily here because I just I finished two years working in Morocco with mixed migration. Uh, and uh, amongst mixed migration is basically refugees, migrants, and also traffic people used coming from the same regions, using the same routes to go to Europe in this case, because they went to, to Morocco. And um, I wanted to, to highlight one thing that we haven't talked so much about, and that's the, uh, the criminal interest in human trafficking and the actual money in organized crime that comes with uh, human trafficking. I think that um, the uh, the example of Libya and Tripoli and the slave market is very spectacular, and I understand it makes a big impression. But as the colleague from IOM said earlier on, a lot of the human trafficking that goes to Europe, uh, you don't see, you don't feel it. It's well regulated by well-organized criminal gangs. And as uh, I had experience with in Morocco, uh, many people have moved from drugs uh, where they saw the risk bigger into human trafficking and smuggling, where it was, up till now, uh, sentences were lower, and uh, most importantly, it was much more difficult to get caught, because as uh, the panel has highlighted several times, uh, a traffic person will not go to the authorities. They have a lot of fear. They feel obliged to stay. Uh, they're terrified, basically, and they might be terrified for the law enforcement in the country of arrival. Um, and uh, these people were, many of them from Western Central Africa, were predestined to go to Europe. Uh, 
to be laborers or as the case uh, very often with women into forced prostitution. So that's something we have to also take seriously that there are forces that wants to keep this going. One more. Um, so I just wanted to tell a little episode that I was reminded during this um, uh, during this talk. I uh, I was living in South Africa, uh, and I was invited um, for tea um, at this uh, well, this very wealthy family, and uh, and as we were sitting there, this little boy came in and he served us tea. Uh, and I remember at the time, I wanted to ask, who's the boy? Who is the boy serving tea? Um, and I didn't. Uh, <laughs> so my message is really, you know, don't be like me, but um, <laughs> ask those uncomfortable questions. Um, you know, it, it's, I, I think uh, it was said also in the panel, if something seems suspicious, uh, um, follow that instinct. Um, because um, it is it is happening in these in here in Norway as well, um, and and we all travel anyway. So um, if if we you know if we follow our gut feeling, we might just be able to 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 change. Yeah. Hey, so I was thinking about, you were talking about like these apples and my friend over here, he, you said something about like what we can do as individuals, but like the structure and everything. And I was thinking about the uh, H&M debate, which has been going on like quite uh, for a long time. And I mean, this is, I think like, like I understood mainly in kombucha in Asia, but I mean, this is only an example, but it's like it's so frustrating so frustrating that like we have this shop around every corner and we walk in there like the Norwegians we are like everyone here and um don't know because it doesn't say this apple is made by no one who got paid for it and this is like that doesn't say anywhere and we go in buy that t-shirt or whatever and it's like, isn't there any part of the like system or structure that isn't there any kind of law somewhere like that we like over our what we can do, you know, that could say like, hey guys, you have to like shut down this place because what you're doing is shitty ass crazy, you know what I mean? I mean because everyone here is talking like such much sense, but isn't there any way that someone like over us could say, okay, we stand for your human rights, but we we don't because we let Hanseverits have their shop everywhere and we keep buying their clothes and they don't pay the kids for what they're doing. All right. I, I'm quite certain that H&M is probably not amongst the worst at all because they have so much focus on them. And I'm not trying to, you know, in any way excuse, but they are under scrutiny all the time. I think uh, as consumers, we can talk to our shops because we are the ones who ultimately choose where we want to put our money. You don't have to go to HMM. 
you know, you can find other alternatives. And I think today there are, but also there are these benchmarks of ratings and you can see, okay, where does H&M come on this rating? How bad are they? People have already assessed them. You know, the supply chains are complex and I don't necessarily think that it's the brands in themselves that are uh, deliberately bad. You know, they don't want, the, I mean, they don't want this. It causes a lot of problems for them in many different ways. It could be many, many, many tiers down in the supply chain. It can be from the material. You know, they think that they have sourced something that was um, uh, responsible, responsibly made. It turns out it wasn't. So it's very, you know, this is complex. And I think the, the, you know, whether it's, um, you know, minerals also, which is a big problem area, often the, you know, the, the real bad guys who knows what they're doing you know, they're on the other side of the brands. The brands, you know, have systems, they try their best. But because of the way that, you know, fast fashion is one huge industry in itself, um, there is such a demand for this also. You know, people want new clothes every season. They want, you know, cheap, again, all of this. I think if, if consumers change behaviors, brands will, you know, follow. They, you know, they're quite simple. <laughs> they want to earn money, you know. And if, and more and more you see brands. So um, Adidas has been one of the leading brands in this space, uh, and they are top rated when it comes to forced labor. Sometimes it's to do with whether you owned your factories yourself or whether you, you just have a brand and then you, you know, you have outsource for others to produce. There's a lot of these structures that can be talked about. But I think, you know, talk to your, you've got social media, talk to your brands, you know, and have dialogue. Uh, shaming isn't always the best way. I think dialogue uh, is good because I think, I think most people, I don't think I've ever met someone who says, yeah, we're behind slavery, you know? And these are just people, ultimately also. Um, my next question uh, is related to uh, some recent case, uh, cases that has been revealed uh, in terms of um, uh, NGOs uh, that has been operating in many of these uh, um, poor countries or countries that have be, uh, that have experienced crisis. Uh, for instance, like AT, uh, the Central Republic uh, of Africa. Um, they, they, uh, it has been revealed that you know um, many of these organizations and uh, especially their workers uh, or people that they work with have also been involved in some of these uh, uh, embarrassing cases or situations where they've uh, exploited the people that they're supposed to help. So my question is, uh, how can you, how can there be trust between? Uh, the people who are being exploited and the people who are supposed to be the helpers or they are rescuers in, in this case. And uh, where is uh, that um, transparency and, you know, uh, because many of these organizations, you know, every single year they come around asking for money so that, you know, uh, I mean, this is one way uh, people like us, simple people, can assist. Uh, in uh, like, you know, for instance, if I donate to IOM, uh, then I'm sure that, you know, they're doing uh, the work 
uh, needed in order uh, to facilitate and assist uh, these uh, some of these people. But then again, I you know a few weeks later, I read about a case where uh, uh, an IOM employee. This is just an example. Uh, have been involved in some of these uh, situations. So you know, I think uh, trust is very crucial uh, when you're trying to help, uh, when you're trying to assist some uh, assist assist uh, somebody. And I think there's a lack of trust, and especially with these cases that are being revealed, uh, I cannot trust that my money will be uh, uh, responsibly used uh, by the Red Cross. And I don't think the person who needs help from the Red Cross can also begin to trust the Red Cross when they read about these cases. Uh, you know. So yeah, just something around that. Uh, I, I hope my question is, uh, is clear. Yeah. Yeah, all right, thank you. Um, I cannot comment on any one agency's uh, allegations we've heard uh, of recently. I am, first of all, we don't collect, I know it's just an example, but just for clarity, we don't collect donations as such. We're generally funded, yeah, just an example. Um, but um, I can just, you talk about trust, and all I can say is that uh, when we hear these things as aid workers and humanitarian workers, of course, it affects us because the majority of people who work in those fields do not perpetrate exploitation on people they're supposed to protect. Uh, from an IOM perspective, all staff have mandatory training in the protection against protect, protecting people and against exploitation of especially vulnerable people. So it's zero tolerance. So from an IOM perspective, just to put that out there, and I'm pretty sure that it's quite the same, but you'll always have the rotten potatoes who spoils a lot, if you like, for lack of a better phrase. Um, how you can trust them, I don't know. I can't, I can't have an answer. I don't have an answer for that. I guess it's just to reassure you that when these issues get highlighted and raised, that the people who are responsible, as far as I know, do face the full force of the law or disciplinary or lose their jobs as a result of it. But there are um, people like me and you, and in every sector you'll have people who will exploit others, unfortunately. But it's about raising awareness about it, talking about it, whistleblowing, that will change these practices. And the fact that people are outraged sends a clear message out there that this is not something that people will tolerate. Uh, yes, and I also think that we um, have a, a great opportunity now with the, like the Me Too campaign globally, and that has also maybe been the reason the Me Too campaign why uh, there has been several cases that have occurred in the media also when it comes to UN officials and mm. different humanitarian agencies, things that have been happening within those agencies and with abuse and uh, uh, sexual harassment and... So I think uh, that points to the fact that we should not underestimate uh, the power of our attitudes and also, uh, yeah, attitude campaigns like uh, Me Too. We have also seen the hashtag Aid Too. I'm not sure if that's only a Norwegian hashtag or if it's been mm. more uh, global. Um, but it's, it's complex and it's and not the easiest thing to like try to work on work on attitudes but uh, i really believe that there is some changes going on now and many organizations that needs to 
uh, tackle their issues with these uh, kind of subjects and yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi, um, my name is Ikia, and um, my concern mainly is in the destination countries, or for example, Norway, because most often when the victims of trafficking are brought into the country, they become exploited, labor exploitation goes on. And then when the government or an institution finds these people, they are treated as um, paperless and deported because, of course, they do not have papers. They're working illegally. But their cases are not handled as victims of trafficking. So in this case, this perpetuates the whole cycle because then they cannot be whistleblowers. They are scared that then when they report who are the backmen, when they report them, they would be deported. They do not want to be deported. So then they stay in whichever homes they stay in, keep on being exploited over and over again. And even in cases where the government promises, okay, be a whistleblower, we protect you for six months, and after six months, you need to produce names and details of whoever was your backman. Probably they do not even have these details, and then if they do have these details, it doesn't go far. Very few cases are prosecuted to the end. So my main concern, and probably the question is, should the cases be treated as only paperless cases, or also they should be seen as victims of trafficking? Yeah. It's very unfortunate that um, trafficking gets conflated with immigration because mm -hmm. what happens if um, a person um, is approached uh, or assessed first and mainly um, based on the visa circumstances is that it creates impunity for uh, perpetrators who wants to commit trafficking. You know, they know that risk is low. Mm -hmm. uh, you need very high evidence to take a case to court. It requires a lot of resources. I mean, uh, you probably all know about the Lyme case. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they, um, this case came up in 2013, and we still don't have the verdict, and it was in court in 2016. So the, it's, it very, very, you know, it requires a lot of resources. But the problem when it's only seen from the migration perspective or the visa status perspective is that you don't really know how much trafficking exists in Norway. You know, you don't know exactly what's going on. And uh, also the risk for anyone who wants to have this as a business model is not very high. You know, they might be caught on other, um, you know, smaller criminal offenses. And you can calculate with that, and maybe it, it then becomes a, a business model where you know that I can earn a lot of money on this, on, on, you know, on this um, hideous crime that, that's so damaging to, to the person that is, is being, you know, the victimized. Yeah, I was just uh, going to say something similar in terms of it's not it's not necessarily linked to migration. It doesn't necessarily affect only irregular migrants. Um, but having said that, uh, it is hard for anybody to come forward because some of the times the people who are being exploited do not necessarily see themselves as victims. Mm. 
we use this terminology and um, it is called what it is called, but it is still very negative. It has a lot of stigma attached to it. When you talk about victims of trafficking for females, most people would think prostitution and it's not only prostitution. But when you look at it from the irregular migrants point uh, perspective that you raised, there are protections for them, at least for a certain period of time in Norway, um, where if they're identified as victims of trafficking, they were given a grace period and given the option to think about whether they want to press charges or not. Most of the time people choose not to for all of the reasons that we mentioned here earlier in, in, in the discussion. But um, it's important to also highlight that <clears throat> it's not only linked to migration. I always like to see migration as a positive thing. There are very negative aspects of it, sure, but yeah. Yes, we've reached almost the end of our, the time for our seminar today. I don't know whether you have any last comments to make. Just happy to see so many people come, you know, on a Wednesday evening and participate in this because I think this is, you know, these kind of settings are really important and we can all share and, and learn more. Yes, so thank you all three of you, Jara, Ragnil, and Tina. And thank you also to everyone also for the good questions.